ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying time is here. That's right. We're talking about John Carpenter's Christine on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet. It's your old pal, Patrick Hamilton, coming to you once again from Rockdale, California. Is that what it's called? (laughs) Something like that. Some made-up California town. This is the Kill by Kill podcast, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. We're going to unpack all the gorious details of 1983's Christine in the hopes that a teen high school student's untimely end is just the beginning of the jokes we might make at their expense. And as always, there's only one person I trust that if my car catches on fire, she'll make sure to run me over off camera the one the only gina radcliffe how are you doing today gina yeah you really need to emphasize the air quotes on teen and high school students <laughs> uh yes as as tough as it has been to see some high school students in the course of our podcasting history in in various slasher movies and whatnot uh, there are some quote-unquote teens here that literally look like they have vested a 401k. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Buddy Repperton has been married and divorced like twice before yes. he's even graduated high school. He appears to have done a couple tours in Nam, which is odd. <laughs> he, I wrote down that he was held back since 1965. Uh, the movie supposedly takes place in 1978. So um, he is decidedly in his 30s, comfortably in his 30s. Everyone else is definitely in their 20s, but he just, that that is taken a a tad too far. It's just just a skosh. Just a skosh. Well, I don't want to scare you, Gina, but we are not alone. That's right. We have a special guest. Now, you know him, of course, as a film critic over at The Ramp and from his podcast on the critically acclaimed network, including Cancelled Too Soon, which is returning not too soon. The one, the only, William Bibiani. How are you doing today, William? I am very well, thank you very much. I am very excited to be talking to you about an expertise <laughs> I have in classic cars. <laughs> Do I know about classic cars? I've seen I- them. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, I'm aware of their existence. I cannot be uh, referred to as a car guy in the sense that I, I, again, I know of their existence, but I have, I've never been mechanically inclined. These these fingies only clickety clack on keyboards. That's their only <laughs> skill. But we yeah. are quite good at it, aren't we? <laughs> there we go. Just well trained. <laughs> um, now, uh, William. Yeah. What was your first experience with with John Carpenter's Christine? Uh, my first experience with John Carpenter's Christine was probably probably a little too young. Uh, like a lot of the great 80s 
horror movies. I saw them probably when I was like five or six. Oh my. Uh, my dad took me to see uh, like Predator and Robocop when I was like five and six. Ooh. And you know what? Oh, wow. I turned out fine. Um, <laughs> I was too young to see Christine when it came out, but by the time, you know, I was old enough to like watch TV on my own, it was in regular rotation sure. on uh, network television. And um, yeah, it was actually a film that I, I deeply loved. I just, I really loved this movie from top to bottom. I think, uh, you know, John Carpenter is is no slouch in the directing department. And although, you know, he's considered a filmmaker who's done a whole bunch of, of classics, I, I don't know anyone who really disrespects Christine, but it rarely makes like, you know, anyone's like top five of his films. And I'm not entirely sure that's fair. Um, I loved the characters. I loved the way that it's sort of married horror with like action car filmmaking towards mm -hmm. the end. Yeah. And I put it to you that the scene where Christine rebuilds herself is still to this day, one of the most impressive visual effects ever captured in movies. So yes. this was kind of formative to me. Uh, it was one of, if not my very first Stephen King movies. And I'm a huge fan to this day. Yeah. I, I love Christine. I have always loved Christine. Um, I think it has undergone a bit of a, reappreciation in the last five to ten years in terms of its place in his filmography it's just very very good looking i mean there's he doesn't make crap looking movies that's yeah. to be said but it looks amazing and it is very well told it's a lean and mean 150 minutes it's very character forward you can't say that this movie does not examine its characters. It's very laser focused in that. And in my mind, it's one of his better character studies. And it's just, there's a component to it that's inherently sad that I enjoy. Like a sad song you listen to to make yourself feel better. There's a undercurrent of remorse. It just, it feels like, a breakup movie too, in a sense. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Because this is coming off the heels of the thing <laughs> in which he's been given a full year by Universal Studios to make that movie. And I, I have to believe we all, I know Gina and I agree on this, but it is, it is an unmitigated classic, not just a horror classic. It is an unmitigated classic mm -hmm. in cinema. All-timer. And it just lands with a sickening thud it had one of the worst like opening months you could possibly open a movie in right like if you weren't et if you weren't like i think poltergeist was the same month i mean blade runner tanked to that same time even megaforce <laughs> megaforce the megaforce there are flying in motorcycles in that my god barry bostwick in his prime he kisses tanked. his thumb and you're Sick. like hey that's, that's why I like, do that. That's why everyone does that now. Now people are all doing that these days. That's why the kids on TikTok do it. And the thing is, is that it, the thing was a great movie. It was really, really intense, and like maybe it was a tough sell in the summer season. Yeah. But you know, sometimes you just you you pull a lousy weekend, and you know what? Christine is another example of that. Yeah. Christine opened the exact same weekend as terms of endearment. Now I oh realize that God. today that might not sound like all that big a deal, but that was one of the highest grossing films 
of the year. It and also, if I'm not mistaken, it was the highest gross in 1983. It also opened against Brian De Palma's Scarface. Oh, Jesus Christ. Clint Eastwood's Sudden Impact, the Dirty Harry movie, and oh. Barbara Streisand's Yentl. What? What are you supposed what the to fuck do? What's happening this weekend? <laughs> that is what? not fair. I, I'm sorry. It's a miracle made any all, money. All all deference to Barbenheimer, but just listen to the list of movies that William just just yeah, ran they, off they the top make, of his they, brain. They, they, don't make week, they don't make weekends like that anymore. <laughs> they do not. They absolutely do not. You have a smorgasbord, and that uh, was in December. <laughs> Uh, that's also very odd to release this in December. It does not feel like a Christmas movie. Uh, well, I mean, the, the funny thing is that it does take, well, at least in the book, it does take place at Christmas. They mention New Year's in the movie. So it is in that vein. Of course, it's in like California. So there's not like a lot of like snow or seasonal no. elements to it. So that, yeah. that kind of makes sense. It's also probably worth noting that this movie was really... Uh, kind of raced out. Uh, they started filming just a couple of days after the novel was first published. Oh wow! Yeah. So this was like everyone was trying to like strike while the while the uh, while the iron was really really hot when it sure. came to Stephen King novels at this time because you know nowadays we think oh there's been a million Stephen King adaptations when Christine was in like pre production there hadn't been that many yet. Yes, there had been all there, of them had been something. There, Carrie true. had been a massive hit mm-hmm. in seventy six. True. And uh, Salem's Lot did so well on television that they literally aired it mere months after it first aired. They're just like, here it is again. This thing you're demanding to have happen. And it yielded an underrated sequel, but I'm sure that's a topic for another for another podcast. <laughs> very, very much is. <laughs> but then we had then there was The Shining, and then there was Creep Show. And then in 1983 alone, there were three. Stephen King movies, and I think they're all among the best Stephen King movies, because we had Cujo, David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, mm-hmm. and John Carpenter's Christine in rapid succession. Yes. It's also interesting to note that those three are probably arguably the most faithful adaptations of Stephen King novels. Yeah, and even th- that's true, and yet even so, they do take some liberties. Like, in both Christine and Cujo, uh, like, the monster, the title monster in the books was uh, far more, like, more of a like a ghostly possession. Yeah. Whereas in Cujo, the movie, they just focused on the rabies, and in Christine, they decided to change it in the adaptation so that Christine was just literally, like, born bad. Yes. Like, just from off, right off the assembly line. And I, I think, you know, in an adaptation, you have to take what works for the medium that you're going to tell that story in and leave other things behind. And I do think the LeBay stuff, while it works in the novel, would be harder to pull off here. That's more of a, a three-part relationship where I, yeah. I think this is is deeper because it is just between Arnie and Christine. It's a lot less clean. Yeah. If it's if it's a matter of Arnie buys this haunted car and it is haunted by the ghost of the previous owner and Arnie just kind of starts acting like him, which he does anyway. But in the movie, and I think they were wise to streamline that, uh, it's just about he falls in love with the car. That's it. Yeah. And you, you, you make it about something that I think everyone can relate to the idea of there. Again, we're talking about car culture here and the movie is very steep, even though it was you know, a set in the seventies made in the eighties. And, but it was about like greaser culture in the 1950s. This idea of you fall in love with your car. Your first car is a magical thing. Everyone remembers their first car. 
Right. And so we're just going to take that and then just go to another extreme and then another extreme on top of that. Once you start adding in and also you're haunted by the ghost of the previous owner, it's you don't need that. That's putting a hat on a hat. Well, people are going to want to know what his deal is. And you can tell that story in a novel. You have all the time in the world. Um, yeah, and- I, I, I do prefer the novel's ending because I think it makes it more of a tragedy in which uh, Arnie is actually killed at a different time than the final confrontation in the garage. He's him and his mother are in an accident out on a highway. Yeah. And, and you, and then Dennis uh, recounts that uh, a witness saw Arnie quote unquote fighting someone in the, in the, in, in the car. So, you know, that's kind of like this last gasp of Arnie, you know, trying to you know, retake his humanity and dying for it. Yeah. I think in a movie that you, you can't really portray that in a way that I think, king intended to to suggest so i you know i think you know having him just be under the full control of christine at this point was probably was the better choice even if it made a slightly less emotional impact you know i think it's actually interesting that you bring that up because stephen king has been like kind of weirdly dismissive of christine as an adaptation Mm. uh he didn't say it was bad really he called it boring in fact the two movies that he referred to as boring in the same sentence in I forget if it was an interview or like an introduction to one of his books, um, were Christine and The Shining. <laughs> now, uh, I love Uncle Steve, but also he really loved his ad- <laughs> the adaptation of, of Under the Dome. So I, I think that his taste in these things might be well, a little questionable. Yeah. I think I have a theory about that. And I think in the case of The Shining in particular, um, you know, The Shining is a story about an alcoholic writer wrestling with his demons. And you know, yeah, Stephen yeah. King, very he's open about it. He had substance mm-hmm. abuse problems uh, in, in parts of his life. And I think that when Stanley Kubrick adapted that story and made it less about the writer's inner turmoil and trying to like redeem, find some redemption within that character and more about how that character is an abusive father and a monster from scene one, I don't know if Stephen King was guaranteed to like that very much. And I think if you look at it in a similar way, if you look at it as Stephen King probably had a relationship with his own car at some point, the idea that Arnie Cunningham just like almost immediately just falls into corruption through like this one sort of symbol of independence and, uh, uh, you know, sort of a symbol of his own like masculinity, his ability to like, you know, take over things mm-hmm. um and it's less about at the end uh well m- maybe he had something left in him after all maybe there was some redemptive arc and i think maybe stephen king doesn't find that lack of inner turmoil very interesting for better or I, worse yeah yeah i his relationship with the shiny i think it's very obvious at this point in that because he that is a raw nerve of a, of a novel that is literally his worst fear given to the page. Am I going to become this alcoholic mess of a person who would violate the very tenets that you believe in, that you entered a marriage and that you protect your family, and you would let that go for the drive of writing something on the page? And that, that fear that is very real to him, and you mess with that, I just don't think it's going to end well. It does. It has almost nothing to do with the movie that it ends up being. It mm-hmm. just is. I don't think anyone can make him really happy about that, nor should it. It just is. When it comes to Christine, I think 
there, there's elements here that are just different for Stephen King than they are for John Carpenter. Like Stephen King explicitly connects Christine to 1950s rock and roll that he grew up on. It's this brash new sound. It's brimming with like forbidden desires and a rebellious attitude, sensual delights. And it's drenched in tragedy, you know, from like the money and the credit that's stolen from the black artists who pioneered the sound to like young people like Buddy Holly, who's on soundtrack here and Richie Valens, who just, they blaze brightly, you know, before being snuffed out. And Arnie inherently would love to shine that brightly in the novel. These are things he would love to attain. There are things about that car that means something to someone who grew up in the 50s about freedom. Once you're behind that wheel, you become disconnected from what you left behind. It is literally a vehicle that transports you somewhere else. And in order to have that, he has to make sacrifices. And some of those sacrifices will be his own sanity, his own morals, and eventually his own blood and the blood of others. Now... Compare that to John Carpenter, who's a very different cat. And he just doesn't share King's, at the time, generous view of the 1950s. Like, he's just much more cynical. Yep. The two of them can't be, I don't think they're that far apart politically. I was going to say, which is, inter- which is interesting, they're, all, they're, they're also about the same age, I think. Yes. Yeah, but, they're from the similar area. Right. But, you know, when you hear about Carpenter, he talks about growing up in Kentucky and stuff like that. And he's entering this age. He's just so pissed off at the right turn of America and Reagan. He just, he can smell the stink a mile away. And he's not afraid to tell people. It doesn't necessarily make him the most popular person around when everyone else is making money. And he's like, you're participating in a corrupt system. I just want to make art, man. Really, really interesting because, you know, we think of Stephen King as this incredibly dark horror author, but so much of his work is steeped in, I think, maybe the most genuine nostalgia. Like, it doesn't feel weaponized. It doesn't feel like it's commercial. It feels, like, genuine, and he wants other people to experience it, too. Just what it was like to be a child. For Stephen King, was the 50s, and that's his idyllic time. For you, it might be something else. But regardless, I think that's what he connects to. And then you look at a lot of his movies, whether, and like uh, books, obviously also, but I'm thinking of the movies, you know, you look at something mm-hmm. like, it, obviously it, yes. uh, and, uh, you know, Stand By Me, uh, you know, the, the opening of Dreamcatcher. Um, those are the Holy Trinity, right? I think we can all agree. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yes. All but, ending up in, in, in something we can loft as high as butt weasels. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't think I can think of a single film in John Carpenter's filmography that feels nostalgic. No. The one I can think of maybe is just the one he co-wrote, which is The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, which is a short film that he Mm -hmm. did in like college that won an Academy Award. But he didn't direct that, so I don't know how much credit you want to give him for it. But no, his films are not about that. His films are about... Like Stephen King does this too. And like, if you look at like this idyllic idea we have of the 1950s, well, it is also about how that was also one of the most evil times in America. But John Carpenter would probably only show you the evil times. Yeah. And there might be like one or two people with some hope in them, but they'll probably get crushed. (laughs) I, I think they're on parallel paths, just 
King is like a little, is just a few years behind Carpenter in terms of him coming to terms with these elements. He's, he's drawing on those, on those childhood things too heavily to, he's too centered on the, on the individual characters within those frameworks rather than the, the, the political framework. Whereas when he gets to it, that's when he's like, oh, there's a, there's a decrepit nature to this idyllic suburban town of what they are sacrificing to have this appearance of being idealized. Whereas Carpenter, you know, right around this, this time, he's, you know, he's seen Ronald Reagan, you know, getting elected president, a political figure who's like surfed on a wave of fifties and sixties nostalgia. Yeah. And that, and that point, Reagan switched parties and actively worked against youth movements to calcify and entrench the military industrial complex, stifle union growth, and later smuggle arms to another country and pay for it with cocaine. The CIA would lace into black communities of urban centers in order to destabilize multiple generations of America. I'm sorry. I blanked out. Am I still talking? I'm (laughs) amazed you have all of that off the top of your head because it's a lot that happened, wasn't it? It was just, it's, it's, it's almost as if I'm haunted by it. Um, my apologies. But Carpenter is anti-nostalgia, right? You said it perfectly. And I think that's the take he latches onto with this movie because the, the book is not as calcified in the, in the public uh, consciousness as everything else is. Like, I, I think if you were to ask, like, my parents, like, what is the Stephen King you know, book. And they would say X, but evil. Like it's a town, but evil. It's a hotel, but evil. It's a dog, but evil. And Carpenter is like, wait a second. Um, It's not necessarily the car, right? Because in his eyes, Arnie never lived in the fifties. It's, it's not a time that he wishes to live through. It's not really the, the core here. Um, And so Carpenter knows that the idea of the fifties isn't the movies and the television, the rock and roll radio. It's this freedom, you know, if you're a white male, it's it, that's, that's the key thing right there. You can't, you can't leave that part out because for Arnie, the power trip that he is on, mm-hmm. part of it is, you know, he has a car and that's symbolic. Part of it is just old fashioned misogyny. Yeah. The idea yeah. of being dominant. And that is, that's one of the things that makes him, like even before the car actually starts killing people, you start keying into that and you realize that at the beginning of the movie, we're sort of, um, uh, there's a natural inclination to sympathize with Arnie because he's a nerd. He's bullied. He has, a, he, he's, he's got like one friend. It's, uh, of course it's John Stockwell and he's like the nicest guy in the universe. Um, we, we want him to succeed. We think, oh, this is our underdog hero. And very quickly we realize that what the car is bringing out of him is probably a lot of inner resentment and darkness that have yeah, been there the whole which, time. Which is, which is something that, that, that King plays into a lot, how, you know, these bullied kids, you know, kind of cultivate a real taste for vengeance, whether, you know, whether they ever actually act out, act out on it or not. Uh, you know, he really plays into you know the the the, the psychology of you know, bullied children in a in a really you know effective and unsettling if you are a bullied child yourself way. Yeah. 
No, and that's something I've always keyed into about King. And I know, like, King has, like, certain storytelling tropes or archetypes that he comes back to over and over again. And it's easy to turn him into a joke. I already did the, oh, it's there an alcoholic writer in a Stephen King novel? <laughs> what are the odds? Um, but I will say this. Most of those things are, he does really, really well. And I would argue that I can't think of a single storyteller, regardless of medium, who I think understands the inner cruelty, just the baseline cruelty of the bully, yeah. the way that Stephen King does, to the extent that it seems like these characters don't have very rich inner worlds in a lot of Stephen King's stories. He doesn't have a lot of sympathy for him, but he still makes them feel incredibly real because when you're being bullied, that's how they come across. Right. Yeah. They, they, they do. I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes they seem a little over the top, uh, but, but that's how. So did know, my bullies. Right. Exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. how a, 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 a kid would perceive them. And what makes the, when they destroy Christine the first time, you so so you you heart heartbreaking and repugnant is they didn't want him to have something that made him happy yeah and yeah. and you know and it's it's just a bit on a bigger scale when you know you're walking through the hallways reading a book and someone knocks it out of your hands yeah they, they just don't want you to have anything that gives you pleasure and there's so many like people who either were never bullied or for or were the bullies or forgot what it was like in school when they're adults that need to have that explained to them. And that always baffles me. The idea like, oh, yep. why would why would they steal your homework? How much are they going to get for that on the black market? I'm like, they did it to be cruel. Where do you, how do you not know it's, that? It's humiliation. They don't gain yeah. anything from it except satisfaction. Exactly. It's about cruelty. Cruelty is the point. And I think Stephen King gets that. So, you know, in, in movies like Christine and and Carrie, you know, those, that was my first introduction to all of these, uh, the movie version. Um you know, they're portrayed as these horrible monsters. I believe that they exist. I 100% believe in those characters. But because of this innate vileness in their soul, uh, it sets them up to be the recipient of really intense karmic justice. Yeah. Well, and Christine is the vehicle that makes that happen because it literally, it literally takes him back to a point where... He has the attitude that he can do whatever he wants, no matter who gets hurt. And that Christine is transforming him into an idealized version of what he thinks he wants to be. I, I And I think you see a lot of turmoil in him as the movie progresses, as he fights against, now, now that he's achieved these things, are they what he really wants? Mm -hmm. But every time he's behind the wheel inside those four doors, the responsibilities of the real world fade away and the open road of possibility beckons. And you can tell your parents to fuck off and tell your best friend he's a dick and yeah. tell your girlfriend that she just doesn't understand because when you're driving, it's freedom. But the thing is, every time Arnie's behind the wheel, Christine is actually the one driving and his freedom is an illusion that he cannot escape. You know, one thing that I was really thinking about when I was rewatching this for, for this show was how, you know, this is Arnie Cunningham's story. This is about Arnie Cunningham's like soul getting corrupted. It's he got he, he got exactly what he wanted, but it it was the wrong thing to ask for, or he did it for the wrong reasons and he's suffering for it. There is absolutely a version of this story that could be told, in which it is mostly told from Arnie's perspective. But weirdly enough, the story of Christine is told from the people around him 
looking at him change. John Stockwell, like he's not like the protagonist in a conventional, like here's the character who changes the most kind of way, but he's our like entryway into this narrative. And he's this like, he's yeah, he's the jock, but he's actually really nice and sweet and supportive and a decent guy. And he has this friend who he was always a booster of, even when it was not easy for either of them. And to watch him collapse like this, like morally, internally, yeah. is yeah, really, really frightening. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple elements that I like that Carpenter brings to it, or at least you know, maybe kind of emphasizes a little bit from the book, is one, the relationship between Arnie and Christine is almost like you know a vampire and its victim. In that, you know, the the stronger she gets, the worse he looks. Yeah. Like, like it's like it's like she is sapping his strength somehow. He's the battery right. that she runs yeah. on. And then, you know, the relationship between Dennis and Arnie is almost like the relationship between someone who is losing a friend to drug abuse, where yeah. they are they are becoming somebody you don't recognize anymore. And 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 I think that. You know, Stockwell's not the greatest actor in the world, but he—I mean—I think he gets to a place where you know he, you know, you can see that his 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 you know his heart is breaking over what he sees is happening to Arnie, but also Arnie resents him, like yeah, yeah. you know, being concerned for him. Like this is bringing out a lot of you know the untapped resentment that he has felt for Dennis. That you know, up to that point, you know, he's he's let go unspoken because Dennis is nice to him. But, you know, when we were teens, we all had that one friend who just always seemed to have everything handed them on a silver platter. And it's like, yeah, every once in a while, you're like, oh, fuck you. That should have been me. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, what did you ever do that was, you know, that, that you deserve you know, everybody to love you and want to be your friend so much? And, you know, in most time, you keep that to yourself. But, yeah. you know, at a certain point, you just like, fuck it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pretend anymore. Okay, well, no, I was just going to say, like, and again, when you look at it from, like, okay, so here's the story from his friend's perspective, and here's Arnie's complicated feelings towards his friend sort of filtered through that. The other, like, one of the other key people that we see this through is actually Arnie's parents, who it's established and shown very early on that they are incredibly emotionally manipulative, emotionally abusive parents. Yes. And they are an enormous contributor to Arnie's strife, probably the primary contributor, really. Um, and we don't like them and we think they're being incredibly unreasonable because they're not likable and they're being incredibly unreasonable. And yet there is still that moment later on in the film where, uh, the, the bullies have destroyed Christine as far as Arnie knows. And he's upset. He's mad at his parents because they didn't let him, you know, keep Christine at the house where they wouldn't have had the freedom to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, he flips the tables on them and he becomes abusive to them physically in the, in the case of his father. Uh, and you realize that this is like a, a, a JD film. This is like a juvenile delinquent film for a moment here. This for Arnie. Mm-hmm. This feels like the wild ones. And for his parents, again, terrible parents, but they're also capable of acknowledging, okay, so, something's really really wrong yeah right we now. fucked up yeah, yeah how can we make you know and yeah. yeah is it too late those are questions one can ask but they are attempting to do something about it and yet he has flipped to the point where he can not see that and they're not coming from they whatever their genuineness has is come a little too late it does not ju- it's not 
an excuse for what he does. It is an explanation for how he's so easily led into the trap he's led into. Now, I love this. But here's another thing. There's another interpretation (laughs) of Christine. That's how amazing I think that both the source material and the movie is, is that you can see it from so many fucking perspectives. I'm quite partial to the queer identity take Mm -hmm. that uh, future Christine adapter, at least uh, as he's signed a contract for it, Brian Fuller pitched um, when he was on Fangoria's Kingcast. So I cannot take credit for this, but every time I've watched it since, it has become incredibly obvious to me what is being laid out on screen. Now, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I, I'm putting this through, through my lens as well, so uh, my apologies. But um, I'd suggest people seek out the episode. But he proposes that Christine is essentially a vehicle for Arnie's transformation into the image that he has told himself he has always wanted to be. And our Arnie's identity dysmorphia compels him to change everything about himself until he emerges out of the cocoon of Christine into the straight guy who's cool, mm-hmm. who fights back against greaser bullies and gets the girl. And of course, that version of Arnie is a raging, violent asshole. Whereas when we see him early on in his, con- in his conversations with Dennis and they have that, that, that little conversation in the car after he's bought Christine and he's like, what, what is it about this? Like, w- who are you? You know, and he just wants, he wants to reconnect with this, this kid that deep down he loves. That's why he's continually hanging out with him and standing up for him. And that love might not be sexual to Arnie. It might be, it might be confusingly so. It might be the first love connection he has, even though he knows it will be realize there's still a part of him that would love that to be. at least this guy loves me yeah yeah when well, well when you Christine that gets that that changes. when you're lonely and, and you are you know starting to feel certain feelings in general you know mm-hmm. it can be very confusing when you have only one other person in your life that you know and you and you project a lot of things onto them yeah you know, there, there's, and, and I'm glad you brought this up actually because rewatching it again, and I, I hadn't seen it in a while, and um, there are moments, especially in like the opening of the movie, where I think John Carpenter makes that a little bit more explicit. Uh, yeah. There's a scene where they're in like the auto shop and the bullies are bullying Arnie. Uh, and one of the bullies uh, ends up like grabbing Arnie in the crotch, and, you know, there's a close up of it. Mm-hmm. And he kind of gives Arnie like a look-see, like afterwards, you know, that's like weirdly intense. When the bully, like after that, like uh, rips open Arnie's lunch, which had like yogurt in it, it mm-hmm. spills out in this like just this embarrassing pile of creamy white fluid. Yeah. But I think even more than that, because all of that's like the kind of stuff like, okay, so this is he's associating this with things that get him bullied, his sexuality. Um with his friend, Dennis, in in the car early in the movie. Uh, and he, I forget the exact line, but he's saying, like, um, like you don't think I'm uncool or anything, do you? And, and Dennis says, and I'm quoting here, uh, no, queer maybe. It, he makes a gay joke. 
And Arnie is like, oh, come on. And he shakes it off. But that's telling Arnie right there, if Arnie is queer, if there is a part of him that yeah. would identify with that, even his best friend is saying, yeah, but that wouldn't be cool. Right. And well, so that, again, the repression continues. I mean, the, what leads up to that, it's very interesting because he goes like, what is it about Christine? And Arnie goes, it's the only thing I've ever found that's uglier than I am. Yeah. And Dennis turns to me and goes, you're not ugly, Arnie. As if to say, whatever you think is broken about you is not broken. And Arnie's response to that is, I know what I am. Yeah. And that is when the queer maybe comes out. And I, we do have to give Dennis some grace in 1978 sure. that one would not be as politically correct about these things. He's attempting to reach Arnie because he generally wants to reach Arnie. Yeah. And he, we've already heard him go, we got to get you laid this year. And Arnie beg off of that. Mm-hmm. To the point where he's like, maybe I'll maybe I'll just masturbate already, and he's kind of like, okay, maybe he's not into girls, and mm-hmm. that that doesn't change how I feel about him as a person. He doesn't know how to communicate that, but he is genuinely trying to reach him as a person. No, and I think it's I think it's it's worth noting that again, I, I think he brings that up, and I think that creates and it helps create an environment where Arnie doesn't feel okay. There's a there's a joke early on when he's talking about playing Scrabble with his mom, and he could win the game if he <laughs> plays the word fellatio. Yes. Of all the, the words they chose, that's a very telling word, that that's yeah. where his brain went. I guarantee you I could look at those Scrabble letters and possibly come up with other options for him, but he had to do it. He had to try to communicate that to his mom. Uh, but no, you're right, and I don't think there's there's like genuine like hatred coming from from Dennis in that yeah. scene, but I also think there isn't a lot of genuine understanding or uh, uh, about that uh, particular topic. And you're right, this is kind of pervasive in media of the era, even characters who are sweet. Uh, like there's there's a there's a Bill and Ted in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. There's yes. there's a joke where they just blast out the f word once, and they've all apologized for that. They all thought that was inappropriate. At the time, there were oh, so yeah. many no, jokes you, in the eighties. Yeah, oh yeah, eighties. Yeah. The eighties was I was I Patrick and I were both teenagers in the eighties, and yeah. just like it was like you know for boys, it was just a rite of passage at some point for you'd be called the F at some point, and yeah. like just you know randomly, you know, it wasn't even it wasn't even like oh you know you're taking dance lessons or you know some stereotypical nonsense. It's just like yeah. that was like the go to, you know, you know, you know, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna you know you you hit the hardest insult yeah and it doesn't make it okay and it doesn't mean that like as a modern audience if you're watching these movies that you have to turn off your sensitivity to that it's okay to feel offended by that and even find some of the movies which go really really far in that direction gross and hard to watch that's totally fair and reasonable but it's all part of a tapestry and i think in christine it actually, I'm glad they don't go further with it, but they, it fits the narrative and it certainly fits this particular uh, Yeah, subtext. I mean, it, it yeah. feels believable both to their friendship and, and the time period that it's in, even yeah. if it's hard to watch now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this movie is, is, is playing a, a delicate game in, in a lot of respects. And I just think it speaks to the quality of the motion picture that it can be all of these things. <laughs> Maybe they're not all delicately handled, but they're all there. Mm-hmm. And they are all real. They're all character-based. 
this is not an empty exercise. And I do feel like there was a time and a place where people thought it was kind of a cash in. Or, yeah. I, you know, Roger here's, Ebert, here's Carpenter trying to get back on his feet and stumbling. It's like, no. Roger no, 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 Ebert no. reviewed this movie and said when it was over, he wanted to like put his pedal to the metal down the highway. I'm like, Rog, what are you? How are you getting that out of this? I grant you there's some cool car stuff in the movie. It's yes. supposed to be horrifying, Raj. Yeah, no, it's a I tragedy. Bet. Yeah. If there is one problem, and I put problem in dick fingers with this movie, is that Christine is too goddamn cool. Okay? <laughs> yes. Because in the book, you know LeBay is evil, and he's just like this weird skeleton guy who's hanging out in the back seat. In the movie, Christine just starts taking out assholes from the jump. Yeah. And just like, it, it, like transforming, transforming a nerd's dreams. And right up until the point he tries to deep throat Lee, or she tries to deep throat Lee to death in the drive-in, like, you, Christine's fun. Like, when Christine transforms, again, well, you're absolutely right, it's, it's dazzling. It is an incredible cinematic moment. And it is fucking cool christine is too fucking cool it's hard to make christine the like it's running around well, like alan rickman on wheels but she's never it's interesting though because although the people that for the most part actually there's i have one minor critique and i've always had it and i've never really articulated it i think until recently uh there's one kill in this movie that i think is weird and unjustified but uh for the most part, yeah, she's killing the bullies and stuff. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're kind of hardwired to be okay with that, especially in a horror context, uh, dramatically. Um, yeah. But we don't actually have any sympathy for Christine. The only time right. we have sympathy for Christine, I think, really genuinely, is when the bullies destroy her. But it's not like she hadn't already tried to kill Arnie's girlfriend at that point. Yeah. Exactly. So like it's not like it's not like Christine is a misunderstood universal horror monster. Yeah, She's uh, a yes. different kind of entity. She is a proper monster, I think, in the John Carpenter version of this, where there's an allure, there's a coolness. There would have to be, otherwise Arnie couldn't get suckered in. But mm. underneath it all, she is a monster. She's a monster who's capable of feeling this possessive, corruptive, corrosive love. Sure. But it's an it's a it's a destructive love, and that's all she's capable of. Love that destroys the person she's loving and hate. Those are the two things. I I agree with you. Um, so as we enter the film, if we're, if we're going to talk about characters in the order in which they die, we must discuss this opening, which features the only one hundred percent not based in the fifties beyond attitude. Uh, bad to the bone by George Thorogood and the Destroyers, which I think is the the crowning glory of marketing of the motion picture. Oh yeah, and, and the, if you watch the trailer for this, it is so stripped down. And and you know if you if you wanted to find out more about this movie, you're going to need to come watch it, which I thought yeah. was was you know good, but also at the same time maybe ultimately to the movie's detriment. <laughs> Might not have helped it. Yeah. yeah, Christine's first victim is an assembly line supervisor whose crime appears to be stopping her runway walk. Um, frankly, <laughs> well, are we talking about the guy whose hand she mangles or the guy? Yes. She, okay, so that that's not a kill though. That's a mangle. No. No, he's he's mangled. Yeah. But frankly, that hood weighs about thirty five pounds. So you mm -hmm. should not put your hand anywhere near 
you know, without any yeah. sort of protection. No, no, no. That, that's on that's on him. See, she's teaching him safety. Sure. Yeah. So yes. that's on him. This, that's a love. He was, sh- he was yeah. shaking hands with danger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In absolute mystery science theater, 3000 terms, he totally was. So that that sort of blood. And if you were to think now Christine has a taste for blood. Uh, another auto, auto worker ends up just hypnotized by her wandering inside. And his mistake is flicking his cigar ash on her plastic covered seats. Mm-hmm. And that's enough for him to, him to end up suffocated inside just at quitting time, by the way, the bell oh, is yeah. rung. That is cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, come on. Then you guys ever have like, you know, grandmothers with like the plastic covers on their couches <laughs> I mean, right. you don't think mm. you, you don't think that if you dropped a cigarette ash on them, like they would just put like a dry cleaning bag over your head or something. <laughs> and that mentality comes from the fifties, just like Christine. So it's very yes. apropos. Yeah, it's very very apropos. And, and listen, that's a, that is a classic example of how a lot of horror movies work, where characters will be punished on on into an unreasonable degree for usually a relatively minor crime. You know, like the it bullies the, and the bullies and Christine notwithstanding, it's usually like the guy in the hitcher. Oh, I picked up a hitchhiker. I and then the hitchhiker has the right to ruin that guy's life completely. It's yeah, here's just, here's just like it's, it's, it's just disrespect. She feels disrespected yeah. because yeah. he is marring her 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 upholstery. Yeah, it'd be and, like it'd be like if he slapped Bugs Bunny. Well, you're 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 dead now. You died. <laughs> <laughs> you, you screwed up. Bugs yeah. is gonna get you. Right. He's just trying to get from one place to the other and you fucked it up. So in that sense, you're inv- you are you are once again shaking hands with danger. Whereas I, a lot of that 80s slasher stuff has that reactionary, you violated what we conceive to be a moray and therefore your presence amongst it just invites death. In, in a sense... As I have talked about it over the years, because you have a generation that's kind of coming off so much death of young people in the Vietnam conflict that they had to find art that translated the just the pervasive, oh my God, we could die young concept into something they could see. And that revolves a very reactionary, public-facing, Republican, my apologies, fuck you, um, <laughs> mindset where, again, we went through Friday the 13th, but you go off into the woods to fuck and to drink and to smoke weed and you die. And ultimately, those who quote-unquote don't survive when, in fact, Friday the 13th movies those final girls up until a certain point do all three of those things and survive just well because um, hymen is not a magical object. It does not prevent you from harm, everyone. We need to get past this shit. And, mar- and marijuana isn't a death sentence either. Lori Strode smokes pot in Halloween. Yeah, well, People forget it, that. She Alice does. smokes pot? Alice almost yeah. has a three-way in the first Friday the 13th? Yeah. Okay? Like, she sleeps with Steve... The, the camp owner, she's like, I don't think I want to work in a place I mistakenly slept with the boss. And yeah. he's like, give me another try. I'll, I'll like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll compliment your artwork. And she's yeah. like, oh, fuck. See, that's, but that's, then, like, Bill shows up. She's like, well, I kind of like, 
I kind of like Bill and Brenda. Brenda also, oh shit. If we all get stoned and naked over Monopoly, that board is just a medium to all sorts of fun. And the only reason she survives is pot makes her sleepy, everyone. Pot makes her sleepy. <laughs> you go four to five rounds with a 58-year-old, you might come out the other side if you have a machete you pick up. I'm just saying. Good we got off in the weeds angry. a little, I think. Well, just a scout. You're very passionate about this, and I admire that. Um, uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that right there. I should put my foot on the brakes. No, 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 you're fine. Like, but that that right there, that that idea, that trope, if you will, uh, that 80s slasher movies are uh, sort of this moral, uh, uh, the, the, almost this sort of cautionary tale, the kind you would hear about. Like, yes, and then they had premarital sex, but then they died in mm. the car and they went to hell, like that kind of thing. Like, <laughs> supposed to like yeah. warn kids. Not to, you know, not to do bad things. And like the earliest stories that were literally intended like for children, like in like the 1800s, were mostly mm-hmm. stories trying to like scare kids into like behaving so that parents wouldn't be inconvenienced. There's a lot of that in our stories, fairy tales and so on. Um, yes. But what happens, I think, in a lot of these sort of genres uh, is that the important films, the most important films in the in early films in the genre aren't necessarily the ones that invent the genre. They're the ones that codify it. They're the ones that make it easy to replicate. Yes. And when they, you make look it, at, they make it look easy. Exactly. And so everyone thinks, I can make one of those. Yeah, it's like if you look at like some of the earliest like proto slashers, it is very, very difficult to copy Bob Clark's Black Christmas. It's actually really ornate and strange. Mm. On the other hand, Friday the 13th has a lot of things that are incredibly easy to copy. Halloween is incredibly easy to copy. You don't need a lot of money. You hit the the five or six of the main tropes and plot points, and you just change the location and the characters, and you're printing cash. So after the fact, people are looking at these movies. It's not necessarily in their original intention and saying, how can we replicate this? And they will look at things like, well, it's about a bunch of teenagers smoking pot and having sex, and then they die. Well, it's not, it doesn't take brain surgery to get you from point A to point B and assume there's some sort of causality. It's not necessarily accurate, but it's obvious that that's what happened. And then all of a sudden, that is the trope. It's not because it was the trope. It's because that's the part of it that's easy to copy. Yeah. And whereas Carpenter, outside of, Halloween in in its in its structure and just because those those friends feel so lived in they, they feel real yeah and he sets up these sort of things but he never really goes back to it there aren't things that he does that are necessarily plot tropes necessarily he just invests well in characters and he understands a mood and i would posit that the mood of Christine oh, is we're back oversexed everyone is horny and a half when lee shows up he, he she is described by one student as she looks smart but has the body of a slut whatever the fuck that's supposed to mean and then mere seconds later we see her in the hallway and tell you i'm telling you about the sluttiest outfit you're ever going to see khaki flat front shorts yeah. a bulky sweater 
and knee socks. I mean, she's asking for it, everybody. <laughs> she literally is existing, and they have boners that you can see from the moon. And, but here's the thing, and the thing is, that's high school. Everyone's yeah. everyone's hormonal. Nobody knows what to do with those hormones or how to respond, or and everyone's making big mistakes about how to like communicate it. But what's what's odd about that is everyone is responding to Alexandra Paul, who I actually really like as an actor. I think she's she's good in this movie, and I think she was like the best part of Baywatch forever. Um, yeah. Everyone's responding to her really, really sexually, and yet there's Kelly Preston. Who is only in a couple of she's like has like one scene with dialogue and then they keep coming back to her. Like there's a moment where John Stockton, all the like the boys are at the far end of the library, like, go on, ask Alexander Ball out. And John Stockwell is just like, oh, I don't know, man, I'm I'm so, so scared. And he has to walk past Kelly Preston, who looks up at him and and, and with this look on her face, like, are we going to sex today? (laughs) <laughs> and he just walks past her and she's like, oh, to go after this person who is, she says herself, she's she's interested in sex. Like she's making out with Arnie. There's some groping going on, but she's not ready. Yeah. They're, they want and, but, the sex, but they don't know what to do with the uh, the actual offer of sex that's on the table, which is so and weird. That, that's where you have to wonder, like, is Dennis's heart in this? Because Kelly Preston is throwing herself <laughs> at you. Kelly Preston is throwing herself at you. And you're like, uh, I don't know. I, You're not wearing knee socks. Mm-hmm. There's just something about the newness of Lee that just everyone is pushing towards figuring out how to break down the mighty shield of Lee. Mm-hmm. And they just look past someone who's oh, like has heart eyes pumping out of her face at you. And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> but I do, I do think it's funny how yeah. when um, uh, it's a football game, when you know, Dennis does a literal double take, like something out of a cartoon and, uh, and, and Arnie and Lee like smooching on the sidelines and is so distracted that, you know, he gets the shit wiped out and is you know off the team for the rest of the year because he's been, he, you know, he's broke his leg. It's been and, folded in half. Right. And it's just like, you know, you, you could put any interpretation as to what he is shocked over, yeah, you, know, exactly. you know, whether, you know, whether it is, you know, Arnie having the confidence to be smooching on this girl in front of God and everyone or that you know that Lee has has you know, elected to go out with him instead of Dennis, or you know you could go back to the you know complicated feelings between Dennis and Arnie. You know he, he whatever it is, he's just he is shocked beyond words. And you know, going- and there, there's Christine hmm. behind them. Yeah, who the last time he saw this, it was a bucket of rust, and it just looks like it came off the assembly line up behind them. Just. Take your pick at all of it. And, there's the, and he's just baffled, and rightly so. And I think baffled is actually a good way to describe Dennis in general here. And I'm going to go with, you know, you, Brian Fuller has his own you know, sort of queer take on Arnie. I have my own queer take on Dennis. And, you know, part of this is because uh, I'm I'm asexual. I'm on the asexual spectrum. Uh, and I look at Dennis, and I look at the way everyone around him is sexualizing things, and he's weirdly impervious. Kelly Preston mm. is throwing herself at him. He doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everyone else, the first time we see Lee, everyone else is ogling her, talking about, I would like to sex her very much. And mm-hmm. he's just like, yeah, go for it. I don't care. He doesn't care. They're, they have to goad him into asking her out. And again, on the way, he passes up an actual offer on the table. 
from again Kelly Preston, who is gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, and so when he sees Arnie, you know, there's obviously I think there's an interpretation of oh my god, that's the girl I asked out, and she went out with Arnie. Uh, for me, I think it's less that she's making out with Arnie. I think it's less that the car has been repaired, which theoretically he probably knows about since he's friends with Arnie. He knows he's been repairing her. It honestly is probably just, oh my God, has Arnie been ghosting me for right. sex? So for like, he's been banged off of this sex? up until this point. Yeah. yeah. Him too? Like, my God. Yeah. Didn't we make a silent pact that neither, neither of us voiced that we would not be sexing? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's weird when like, you know, you're like 16 and suddenly you know, your closest friend is in a sexual relationship with Very someone. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to treat you the same way anymore. It's entirely foreign because it is often the first time you're dealing with that from your perspective. They're dealing with it for the first time from their perspective. No one has previous experience to draw upon. You might as well have fucking flying cars going about because it's unprecedented territory you're entering into. It's like being told, like reading in a book how to ride a bike and getting on a fucking bike. Yeah. Like you can hear about balance and pedaling, but until you're forced to do it while a bike's in motion, you're not riding a fucking bike. And that is awkward and people spill and people fall and it, you know, emotions are raised and it's a whole thing. Then you enter in hormones and all that stuff. It's just a crazy concoction to try to deal with while you're playing football, actively yeah. playing football. I'm going to say this right now. We are 57 minutes into this podcast and technically we're still on the, po- on the prologue. <laughs> Technically, never got past the prologue. We've been skipping around a bit. <laughs> well, I mean, they made they they buy they buy Christine. Uh, um, you're gonna, you're uh, skipping some deaths because a lot some of them happened off camera. The previous owner died in the car. His daughter died true. in the car. His wife died in the car. We only deal with deaths on screen here. We if we went just being into thorough. what deaths being we thorough. don't see, there are people who are dying in houses that we're never even meeting. Okay, touche, touche, touche. Um, they are important to the plot, though. I'll just throw that. Yes. Okay. Um, it should be noted, um, this is where the confrontation that we talked about earlier happens with Buddy and Moochie and Rich, who you might know from Ghostbusters. Yeah, and, and his he looks hair like, volume. Oh, it's ridiculous. He looks like no. Jim Henson's Eraserhead Babies. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love okay, him. that's better than my joke. I'm leaving that there. <laughs> and... Um, uh, Moochie is the one whose attack style is grab your balls from behind, which is quite telling. And then you also have Don played by Friday the 13th, Stuart Charno. And I, I urge everyone to Google Stuart Charno's like just cast picture that comes up whenever you like look up the cast that he's in. He looks so fucking surprised that he's being phonographed. It's it's an oddly compelling choice. And I'm not sure it's his choice, but it is a choice. Um, so there's that. I do love that Mr. Casey, the shop teacher, is unafraid of Buddy. Yeah. I mean, on a cellular level, he's well, like, he, he deals he you know, he deals with buddies every year. Like yeah. like yeah. you know, Buddy just happens to be the the you know, the forty years old. I mean he's probably been dealing <laughs> with he's probably been dealing with Buddy specifically for twenty years. Right. 
There's nothing. There's no surprise with Buddy when he's been in your class for a decade. Yeah, when he looks, when he looks at you know, first first day of school, he's looking at the student roster. Oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> Fucking again. What's actually like, more interesting is the fact that Buddy is intimidated by this guy. Yeah. And you realize that, like, because this guy has some power over Buddy. This guy can kick Buddy out of high school. And for Buddy, that's got to be just terrifying. He's lived there for two-thirds of his life. Where am I going to go? What's he going to tell people back at the Senior Citizen Center when, he, when, he, when he's been kicked out of high school? But I will say this. I will say this. The fact that Buddy is obviously that much older, and we, we joke, okay, he's been held back. Probably true. He is probably this like weird aberration in the school who is technically like physically more powerful and technically. Oh yeah, than, yeah. Everybody, everybody most people, most so, like, people have that like twenty year old with a mustache in their in yeah. their senior class, <laughs> and then they're just beaten up on the fourteen year olds, and it's like, dude. <laughs> Wait, you're like a, you're like a, a holy you're like a whole ass adult. You could go to jail yeah. for this. Exactly. Yeah. Which again fits the role. He's supposed to be intimidating and terrifying. And also the implication is probably not that bright. Yeah. No. You know? No, 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 no. I would not call anything buddy is, does, exists around <laughs> an atmosphere that, that encircles him bright. Mm. Um it should like there's one this one scene when uh Dennis and Arnie are pulling down the street where Christine is parked outside of LeBay's house. And the, the it starts uh, through the car window, and then Arnie goes, No, 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 back up, back up, back up. And as they back up, the camera splits off from them and goes to the right. We've never the world has not existed beyond those two in the car. And then the camera is just attracted. It just can't help itself. It has to find Christine. It is straight out of Taxi Driver. Scorsese pulls the same fucking move. And I'm like, oh my God, I love a director who tells you where to look. Oh my God, why can't we do this anymore? John Carpenter. Why can't people tell you where to look? Has one of the most just innate eyes. Like and, yes. and he's got this wonderful cinematography. He's got this brilliant cinematography in most of his movies. And it rarely calls attention to himself. You don't see this like one perfect shot. And it's the shot where the camera pulls off from Christine. But guess what? That's a perfect shot. Oh, yeah. Like when when like the bullies like go into the garage with Christine and the camera like pulls away from Christine and you get this beautiful sense of the place and mm-hmm. then they start swarming the frame and it's incredibly intimidating. That's actually a really complicated camera move. It feels really com- confident and simple, but the choreography and the movement and it's just you had to work your ass off to get something that looked that natural. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I and the work pain is like it's all on the screen. I just. I love his control of your attention. Yeah. Um, we need to give, we need to give we need to give credit uh, to the cinematographer for that, though. I just want to uh, just as out of fairness uh, because yes. that right there is Donald M. Morgan, and uh, he did this movie. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually trying to remember offhand like what else he did, and I I'm actually kind of struggling at the moment. What else did he do? I'm going to look this up because it's going to bug me. Yeah, hang on a second. Um, Starman. He did Starman. Star- oh yeah. Okay. Another sure. great movie. There you go. He did used cars. He did a lot of great movies around this time. He did John Carpenter's yeah. Elvis as well. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and up until this point, he's, uh, my, now his name is just leapt out of his, out of my mind, who is a cinematographer. Donald on M. Morgan. Oh, and oh, Dean yeah. Cundy. 
Dean Cundy. Dean Cundy. But Cundy is now, yeah. now Cundy is so in demand after those movies that he flips over to like Spielberg and he just becomes the blockbuster guy to the point where in 88 he's doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit and he's just inventing ways to fo- photograph things you've never photographed before. Mm-hmm. So it's like people come in contact with Carpenter and they just they get they they are have a lovely symbiotic relationship with one another and they elevate one another's work it's it's pretty incredible that just the miasma of it all but okay so another element here we have is is casting and I, I think this is a rather well cast movie even the smaller parts and part of that is robert's blossom oh he's amazing <laughs> oh man incredible here you can like just smell um, the smell coming off of him <laughs> it like comes through the screen I mean, he shows up on camera in what is what is basically a Fred Garvin male prostitute hernia. Harness. Yeah, I love that they, they. I love that they kept that. that's in the book that he yeah, has this like harness, yeah. this like yeah this like back brace and it's filthy and, and I and I love that he actually kept that. Yeah, it's a it's a great touch, and he just you know from minute one that he's holding back information. Hmm. Dennis knows he's holding back information. But you can't drag it out of him. He just he just wants he, he just knows wants this to get, look in Arnie's eyes, like well, and he wants to get rid of this thing. Yes, exactly. Mm. If you have a death mobile and someone's willing to pay you three hundred dollars to take the death mobile, I'll take the three hundred dollars, please. Yeah, you know it's a uh, uh, Robert's Blossom is one of those great character actors where as soon as you see them in the movie, you know, oh well, this scene is going to be great. Yes. I don't have to worry about this scene. The scene is covered. He's going to be an ornery old man. And the thing is, that's mostly what he did. People probably know him best as just the old scary guy from Home Alone. And that's yeah, a great role. Exactly. He, did, he nailed it. That's no, no objection there. But I just want to give, if you've never seen it, if anyone hasn't seen it, Robert's Blossom had one great starring role in Deranged, which is Ooh. this like quasi telling of the Ed Gein story from like 1973, 1974. And it's really, really cool and good. It's, it's gross, Ooh. but I think it's really, really good. So I recommend <laughs> it. Just get credit where credit is due. Yeah, you don't get, he doesn't have as, as opposed to the Ed Gein tales <laughs> that, you know, take that, that are like fun ropes. Well, I, yeah. I would argue that Psycho isn't really like grotesquely violent. It's just mm-hmm. violent. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, are <laughs> a lot more visceral than others, but fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Um, speaking of casting, um, later on, um, when Arnie is told he cannot keep Christine in the driveway of his parents' house, he takes it to Darnell's. Yes. Darnell is played by uh, Robert Prosky. Oh, I love Robert Prosky. <laughs> he's talking like he's got like a pork sandwich stuffed in one corner of his, in one corner of his mouth. An Italian beef sandwich <laughs> lunged in one cheek, Gina. It just... Unbelievable. Like the, the gravy just spills out of his mouth every time he spe- he opens <laughs> it. And he's such a complete character too. I love Darnell in this movie because when you meet him, he's an asshole. Yes. He's an asshole. But I think it's worth noting, he's not an unreasonable asshole. He comes He in, understands value. He understands he, value, yeah. He understands value. And yeah. when he sees Arnie fix up this car, when he sees that Arnie mm-hmm. is capable and responsible and it follows instructions. He's like, I can actually use this responsible team in my in my favor. I, this this is someone that isn't just a shitter. Mm-hmm. This is someone I can actually rely upon. 
No, he's just unaware that Christine is a death machine. Exactly. And the thing is, like, yeah, he 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 offers Arnie a job. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to let Arnie in. Arnie was bringing that death machine just, just from pure carbon monoxide poisoning. That thing was a death machine when we first meet it. And mm-hmm. he lets it in anyway because this kid needs a place to go. And he's like, he's going to assert his dominance over that situation, but he'll let you keep it here. Yes. Yeah. Um, later, uh, a month later, as, as things progress, Dennis goes back to LeBay and inquires as to what is the backstory here? Did it actually kill people? And LeBay is like, well, yeah, it killed my brother's daughter. Then it killed my brother's wife. Then I forced him to get rid of it. And then the car, quote, the car came back three weeks later. And he leaves it at that. Now, it's like, what do you mean? He's like, it came back. It came back. <laughs> I think I mean, I mean, I mean exactly what I said. It came back. No detail on that. Any detail on that sentence, and it robs it of its magic. But yeah. you just, you can just imagine, just like, what was just? Did it just show up in the, in the garage? Did they find it somewhere? How did that? You, you just, your brain is telling so many stories because yes. that's not what cars are supposed to do. That's a exactly. weird thing for a car to do. Why would a car do that? And you you have to trust the the audience. You do not have to explain because I I have a feeling that many a studio would have given Carpenter the note. You have to tell. People I, I feel like that would happen. Back. That would happen now if they yes. you know if it, this was a brand new movie, people would complain. We don't get enough backstory about the car. There'd be flashbacks. Right. You know there'd be flashbacks. Right. And it's like you don't need to know. You, all you need to know it you know, is the did the car drive itself apparently. That's yeah. that's all you need to know. This is something that I think 80s movies, horror movies understood that I think a lot of horror filmmakers kind of don't right now. I have a theory. I don't know how true it is, but I have a theory that if you I, I wouldn't like assume you could direct a great horror movie if you couldn't tell a great campfire story. Like just sitting at the campfire, the light underlighting your face and you just tell hook hand, but you're telling it great. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, a lot of 80s movies and, and earlier films as well, but I think 80s, for some reason, they just did it a lot, uh, understood the importance of oral history of terror. I'm going to tell you the story of how everyone died at Camp Blood. We don't have to see it. The fact that you heard it is part of it. The idea of an urban legend mm-hmm. had power and that the reason why urban legends capture our imagination is because they force us to visualize these incredible things and they get under your skin and the way that you see it will affect the way that you will tell it. And so a lot of like these horror movies, I I look at uh, Friday 13th part two, I think is my favorite example of this because Friday 13th part two treats the original film as a campfire story. They literally tell it. Yeah. And the only character who survives in that movie was the person who paid attention to the story. Exactly. They paid attention. They thought about character and subtext. That's how they survive. And the only question is, is that actually Jason? Yes. (laughs) Yes. But we won't get into it. We talked about it for two and a half years, Gina. (laughs) Two and a half years. (laughs) Um, And here is an example as you're talking about this, where where the where the pure cinema enters the sphere, because after this conversation, Dennis visit visits Darnell's in the middle of the night and looks in the window and sees that the speedometer that he knew 
said 93,000 miles, and he says it could be 193, has now been reversed to 88. Mm-hmm. And you put the statement and what he sees together, and when the radio comes on, he knows something's not right. He doesn't know the answer. Yeah. But he's been given a whole new set of questions that are very disturbing. One of the things I love about this movie is how, because again, with the exception of Arnie, and even Arnie doesn't figure it out right away, nobody assumes this is a haunted car. Nobody assumes it is a conscious car that wants to kill and have sex with Arnie. Nobody assumes that. But they all notice things that add up to it. And they're trying to use their like logical brain. One of my favorite scenes is when Harry Dean Stanton shows up and God, he's one of the best actors ever. And he shows up late in the movie and he just steals it. It's like Orson Welles in compulsion. Just all of a sudden, no, this is a movie about Orson Welles now. Okay. Uh, And he's, you know, these kids have been dying and he knows that Arnie had a motive and he knows that Arnie's been acting weird, but the way he's been acting weird cannot be explained there are things about this car that are illogical and he's trying to be like, surely this adds up to murder. Right. Well, but I can't, but the paint. I don't really know this kid, but there's something, right. there's something really weird about he him. He could get the whole story right now. If he was willing to admit that the pieces added up to haunted car. But yes. he can't admit that. <laughs> he can't actually Who present amongst that theory. Us would be able to right. when confronted with. Listen, he, the paragraph is there, but there, to read it and believe it is another thing. Yeah, yeah I, lo- I love that he um, that he he's a little put a little taken aback by by Arnie's like complete and utter lack of concern over this over this this you know, police conversation. He just like. Yeah, whatever. Some kids die. Shit happens. You know, yeah. and it's like he's like sixteen. And he shook to, hands with danger, Gina. Think, think, think back to when you were sixteen, and yeah. a cop just came up to you and started asking you questions because one of your classmates was horrifically killed. Dude, if a cop went up to me when I was sixteen, I would be thinking things like, "Do they know I know a guy who knows a guy who can get pot?" <laughs> like they must know I know a guy who knows a guy. Oh God, I'm dead. I'm gonna go to jail forever. It's like, did I do it? You, you, I, you yeah. know, I would turn into like a, a chunk in the Goonies, just admitting everything I'd ever done yeah. from like age eight up to yesterday. Yeah, this is coming off the heels of that. Arnie takes Lee to the drive-in, and they're making out, and he's trying to take it further, and she's like, no. And when they get back in the car, she mysteriously chokes on a hamburger and she he can't get to her because his side of, of, of the car is locked by Christine and she's able to unlock her side and the guy rescues her. And he witnesses this other man give the Heimlich to her in the most, again, sexualized manner <laughs> I've ever seen photographed. It is, it is a lot, including a... After it comes up, there's a there's a repose. There really, she sinks into his arms. Well, she she's getting air into her lungs again. She well, was like she was almost about to pass out. Yeah, I don't like, know that it's, I don't know that you can't give someone. I don't know that it's possible to give someone the highlight like, and not make it look kind of suggestive. I saw industrial films in the '80s that made it look very unsexual. Gina, this is the only one where I where it really does look like 
finally she's getting the relief she's so desperately needed up until this point in someone else's arms. I saw this movie, as I said, when I was like five or six. All right. And you know what? I was able to pick up on most of it. Not the subtext, but I followed along. To this day, I still find it a little thin as to how it was trying to kill Lee. Okay, so I'm going to trap her in the car, right? Okay, (laughs) now I'm going to subtly convince her to make that go down the wrong pipe. How did you do that, Christine? (laughs) I understand running someone over with your tires. I don't understand how you can lock someone into your car and somehow subconsciously convince them to choke on a hamburger. It's always weirded me out. Kinetic. She's she's (laughs) carrying. Within the realm of her four doors, uh, she's carrying. She burst out. She burst out of that grave, went right into a car. But the, <laughs> other, the other people that she kills, like she kills Darnell by like shoving him against, like crushing him, right? Yeah, she you, squishes yes. him. Uh, you could have done something actual. You could have done something. I don't want to talk about that death actually, uh, but uh, no, like <laughs> no, <laughs> we're, we're vetoing no. Darnell. <laughs> no, no, no. I no. I just I just find that very uh, harrowing. Same. Yes. Uh, but like, yeah, I don't know. That that death always struck me as. Well. I remember when I was a kid, I was watching and I had seen it a couple of times. And every time I hit that scene, I'm like, can car radios just do that? Because you see, it's a lot of emphasis on the car radio and it's glowing green, all creepy like. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I'm joking. And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess car radios would be pretty dangerous. Like in my head, I was just I, I trying just... to find some connection. And I found it really thin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the farther you go down the rabbit hole of the king stuff, it's like, <sighs> all right. She's she's on the beam, right? Mm. The beam that Christine exists on is broken. And Christine can do things that a car shouldn't be able to do. Yeah. And if you're within the sphere of Christine, you take on powers you, you absolutely should not have. Mm. I, I don't know what the what imbues Christine necessarily that powers, but I just think she's born bad. And this is her abilities. And we have to accept Christine for who she is. It's very important. Uh, now, uh, later that night, Buddy's boys tear the holy hell out of Christine. We've talked a lot about Ugh. that. It's it's incredibly photographed. There's decidedly horny overtones to how they take things apart, how they rip, uh, you know, seams open, how they use their knives and, and hammers. It yeah, I mean, they, 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 they defile it, basically. Yes. In, in, in essence, uh, I, well... They, they 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 are coming out here as a group. Yeah, let's put it that way. So it is a violation. And of course, Arnie takes this in stride, as we all know. Mm. Uh, just kidding. His sanity fucking breaks. He choke slams his dad. Like, it's a whole yeah. deal. And when he returns to try to find some semblance of how how can I put this back together, Christine basically communicates to him that together if he only just work with him yeah everything can be exactly as he wants it to be he feels and, so alone at that point he just he just yeah. lost his girlfriend like seconds earlier he doesn't have his parents his best friend is technically available but he's in the hospital he can't really help him right now he's broken he's broken yeah. and all he has left is Christine. Christine has done this abusive relationship thing where the, she has removed everyone else from his life, so all he has is her. And then mm-hmm. she shows him something magical. I can repair this piece of myself. And he's at a point now where he's not going to question that. He's not going to be frightened of that. Christine is all he has. And there's this amazing moment where he just walks into this one beam of light 
And he just says, okay, show me. And then mm. you, the, the light turns on and there's that wonderful sound effect <laughs> and the music kicks in. So good. And it's this weird, jazzy, Angelo Battlementi vibe. And then- The sexy sax oh appears. Oh my God. Yeah. And then they, because what happened was they took a car and they used like an internal winch to like crunch it from within. They just played it in reverse. It's the coolest looking thing I have ever, I still think in the entire canon of film visual effects, I don't think I've ever been more enchanted than Christine fixing herself. It's so, it's it just so looks great. Perfect. And it's just like, you know, it's all practical. And, and, you know, again, you know, if, and when they do, you know, update it, it's going to be all CGI. I and, know. It, and, and it's just like, yeah. You know, you, you, you're going to lose that, just that, that, that visceral feel of something reshaping itself. They had like 24, 25, 20, like they had like around 25 different versions of Christine, some of which were just cars that look kind of similar, some of which were Plymouth Furies that they use in different versions of the film. And that's true for any film with a, a hero car, like a car you can yeah. use a lot of. There'll be one you use for driving. There's one that you use for this kind of shot, et cetera. But Christine has to do some gnarly shit. So they have to fuck up that car. So when they start fucking up that car, when Christine starts going after those bullies, knowing that they fucked up a classic car, it does so much heavy lifting in your mind. It makes it so much more impressive that they were right. willing to do that for the movie. That just the, the the damage is incredible. You can't just buy 25 of them. You have to locate them. Yeah. You have to rehab them. It was them. not you a popular to- car. Exactly. It, it, all of it, it just mentally, it just lives within the framework of the movie and, and makes it a, a, a richer meal, as it were. Yeah. So now that Christine has demonstrated that if you're willing to put in the emotion into this, I can make certain dreams come true. We cut to the flower district of downtown L.A. And... Uh, <laughs> We see that Moochie emerges from the cab of a of a truck, and you don't have to be DeAndre Cole to ask what's up with that. Where's he been? Why did he? Why did he get dropped? I mean, I just, are you telling me there's subtext? <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, Moochie has a move from the from the subtext. The other subtext to the guy you you hitching in trucks who you know, earlier <laughs> you humiliate someone by grabbing them grabbing them by the balls. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, all I'm saying is Moochie ends up dying in a wet, tight spot. And um, it's not lost on me. Uh, His, the chase sequence is very interesting. It's hard to believe that a Plymouth Fury can, it's easy to believe it can be menacing, but they managed to make that menace in motion because it's a very heavy car. It can't, it can't turn tightly. This isn't the Italian job, you know? And, but they make it really come alive. And that little chase sequence where he gets into a place where he's like, hey, you can't, you obviously cannot harm me with that car. And the car is like, any other car can't harm you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, even the audience is like, surely I can't squeeze into that tight little, okay, well, surely you can't what? squeeze in that tight little spot? <laughs> well, well All right, I'm going to squeeze go if that tight little spot. I'm going to go if we do any more of this. Um, but you're right. It is It is this really weird, incredibly intense thing. And it's like John Carpenter films Christina the sequence like a charging rhino. Yeah. Like it's just this giant, massive, like like just slab that can move at unthinkable speeds, 
and it is just racing after you. And even though that guy, you know, is a bad person, um, he didn't kill anybody. Like you, yeah. you, you can't help but pity him. Like when when Christine is after you, I mean, Jesus, that's that's. Yeah, she's relentless. He's yeah, he's yes. he's really really screwed. Although I will say this, even as a kid. Uh, when I'm watching the scene, I'm super impressed by the whole bit where the car crunches into the, the little tiny alleyway and like it rips its sides to shreds because it doesn't care. It can fix itself. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, it's crunching its way through that alleyway, but it is slowing it down. I feel like he could walk over the top of it and emerge on the other side. And it's going to take Christine a little time to get out of there. And maybe he could lose. Yeah, it. he's trying to spend a little too much time trying to reason with who he <clears throat> believes to be Arnie behind the wheel. Yeah. And Gina, there's a little bit of what we like to call it's been a good run going on. <laughs> he does, yeah, he does like, oh well, all right. I guess you're not gonna listen. I guess you're not gonna listen to reason. I guess you're still mad. So this might as well happen. I might as well, my top half and my bottom half might as well be separated by 1958 Plymouth. I like I do like the 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 spooky moment where she returns herself to the garage and oh, and yeah. uh uh, uh, what was the, uh, the Darnell? The Darnell is like, he's just kind of puzzled that nobody gets out of the car. Yeah. <laughs> when it shows up. But how could somebody be in the car? It's the car obviously can't drive itself, but conversely, how the fuck is no one in this car? Exactly. It, it, once again, it's that moment where somebody looks at something like, are there flying cars? Do werewolves exist? This is there's a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah, you can see a lot of people. You can can see a lot of people, like a lot of the characters, like just trying to, you know, desperately try to make sense of what they're seeing. Because the thing thing that I think people like, you know, there's this, there's an interesting disconnect between audiences uh, and horror stories, and it's simply that we're safe, we're in the audience, we're fine, we have a disconnect, and we have one huge advantage over the majority of characters in horror stories, which is we know they're in a horror story and those of them don't. So to us, we paid a ticket to see Christine. We know there's a killer car in this thing. And I think the movie's really quite genius about it because it shows that people aren't like oblivious. It's just, it's too big a leap for someone who has never been in a world with a living car before to assume that a car is alive and killing people. So we can appreciate that they're not unobservant, but we can also appreciate that this is too much for them. And that's something that is, it can be tricky. And then you get that moment where the audience is like, don't go in there, you fool. I'm like, they don't know there's a killer out there. So think yeah. about this a little bit. Or even if they did, like if imagine all of a sudden you're, you're like, you're, you're 17 years old. You're, you've been bullying people for the better part of your life. You think that's all life is. You're going to graduate soon. You realize you're about to have all of this like power that being a senior has, has given you is going to be stripped away and you're going to be nothing and your life is over. And now all of a sudden, a haunted car is coming to get you and you'll be dead in five minutes. That five minutes is a, is a psychologically intense five minutes because not only are you trying to save your own life, not only are you being like flooded with adrenaline, but you also have to reconcile with the fact that this entire time there've been haunted cars. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm not thinking rationally enough for you guy in the fifth row. Who's barely paying <laughs> yeah. attention. Like I'm, I'm dealing with a lot here right now. Yeah, I, I do. I, I, yeah, that's probably one of my biggest pet peeves about people complaining about movies is a, expecting the, the, the characters to have information that the audience already has. 
Yes. You you cannot you cannot demand that that every person living in the movie is also watching the movie. That is not true. Yeah. Um, we just have to give characters that grace. And I feel like that is kind of a little bit lost over time. And partially, Scream is a little to blame for it, but I feel like we've kind of repaired some of that damage. But every once in a while, it really rears its head. Uh, media literacy, everyone, look into it. Um, we talked briefly about uh, Harry Dean Stanton and his smiling eyes and, and fingers that are meant to hold on to a Marlboro Red. Uh, talking to Arnie. I just want to point out, Arnie is dressed like he works in the kind of shop that lets you know all the different hankies mean in cruising. Mm-hmm. Just, that is an outfit. Oh, yeah. Outfit. That's a guy who's seen a lot of Kenneth Anger movies. <laughs> <laughs> Conversely, and we love a quote-unquote teenager's bedroom here on Kill by Kill, you only see one frame of Lee's when she receives a call from Arnie later on. I just want to point out that there is a crazy fucking Holly, sexy Holly hobby on her, on, on her. Like, oh, I missed that. It looks like it's pregnant. It looks like it's seven oh. months pregnant. It is. I will send you the, the photograph. You will not believe this shit. Not since Amityville two. Have I seen a doll so inappropriate? It is truly something to behold (laughs) love a horror bedroom anyways later buddy don and rich end up confronting christine this all takes place at gas station christine t-bones buddy's car right into rich who uh, dies in the back wall of the garage Uh, gas spills out of buddy's car and don ends up emulated in a gas explosion which also catches christine on fire who goes after buddy while aflame, and it's almost as if that he that Carpenter remembered that firewalk in Halloween 2 and goes, I can do that with a car. You know, I and he fucking does okay. It. Christine on fire and still driving, and there's an actual stunt person in there in like a suit with an oxygen tank. Unbelievable image. Oh, yeah. Just a staggeringly terrifying image. It's truly incredible. I think it's worth noting, I don't think we mentioned it yet, that uh, after The Thing, John Carpenter had been attached to a couple of movies that either fizzled out entirely or ended up going to a different director. He came this close to directing Firestarter uh, before this. So he probably was like already thinking about a lot of pyro when uh, it was time to do the scene uh, in Christine. I haven't seen a gas station get this destroyed since Jonathan Winters and it's a mad, 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 mad world. (laughs) If you told me Christine was haunted by the ghost of Jonathan Winters and it's a mad, 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 mad world, I would have believed you. The other thing I love about this sequence, and it's it's something that like I, I think it's just interesting sort of cultural legacy about it, is that this whole thing with Buddy running down the highway and Christine chasing him on fire. This is the direct inspiration for the Radiohead music video Karma Police. Right. Which is a classic. It's an all timer. And I don't know a lot of people who have actually like discussed that connection. I remember when that came out and everyone's like, oh, it's so terrifying. I'm like, yeah, it's it's Christine. It's Christine. We're just not going to give the credit for that. Okay, fine, fine. Okay, I guess Radiohead (laughs) fucking invented it. Okay, good for you. (laughs) Amazing music video, though. It really, really works. But yeah, it's just so. It's the coolest action sequence. Like, it's unfucking canny. It is how and awesome then, and, it is, and then Buddy's just slept like a a flaming pile of laundry on the uh, on the on the highway. 
<laughs> yes. Not only run over, but left with a flaming corpse. It's just, wow. It, it's, it's pretty incredible. And as I've told people on the show before, anytime you're dealing with something that's on fire, if it's a person or you're in that car, you're not, the person, the stunt person is not breathing. They can't breathe in oxygen because if you breathe in oxygen, you will literally inhale flame. So you're holding your breath while you're on fire. Mm -hmm. It's a seriously dangerous fucking thing to do. And they managed to do this in a way that looks so fucking cool and nobody was hurt. And holy shit, I love movies. Such a miracle. And then the it's really and then the car comes back to Darnell's and it's like a joke. It's like yeah. it comes back and it's charred and it's still smoking and on fire. And Darnell is like looking at it like, okay, come the hell on now. Well, I think he has to give the audience some relief after what they've just witnessed. Yeah. It's been it's been such a buildup. And then to see this flaming car on the road, you just what is the aftermath from that? And then you see the aftermath. Of yeah. That. Like you have to give it up to the man. This is a story well told, y'all. But we're, um, we're at the point where Darnell is about to meet his end. And this is my biggest critique with the movie. The thing in the movie that I don't think makes sense, mm-hmm. based on the internal logic of the movie as it has been presented. Uh, Darnell sees Christine on fire, and he knows that Christine's already been wrecked in his place. He yeah. likes Arnie, at least a little. So... When he sees this thing, it's clearly been stolen and destroyed, and it goes into his place. He gets his shotgun, mm-hmm. and he's ready to defend Arnie's property. And he says, okay, get out of there. Someone is trying to hurt Christine. And Christine kills him for that? But she's seen him. He's a, wit- <laughs> he's a witness to her crime. And I, I- don't. he hasn't seen the crime? But he's seen the aftermath. Like he he is he is Cato hearing the the AC unit bounce and finding a bloody glove outside. Like I, I, there, I see he your can point. connect Christine to what has happened. I see your point. But what is Christine afraid of? That she's going to be put in jail? Like I think Christine, when you see the movie, with the exception of the guy who gets his hand bit, and you you're right. Mm-hmm. That's like her getting a taste for blood. Everything after that, someone has offended or hurt her in some way, or or Arnie. That's what she's after. You're trying to take Arnie away from me. You're trying to take uh, uh, LeBay away from me. I will kill you for that. Darnell didn't do that. You could have come up with an excuse for that. You could have made a reason for, like, Christine to misinterpret him or him to push things too far or anything. Really? Yeah. And instead, he's actually being really helpful. And yeah, he gets inside Christine. But, and I guess, you know, she didn't like it very much, but she just kind of kills him all willy-nilly. Yeah, I think, I think that's, the, that's the thing. She just doesn't, she doesn't want him there. He's the, like, like <sighs> he doesn't belong there. <sighs> I, I, I just yeah, find it really thin. I find it really thin. Mm-hmm. Everything else in this movie is so emotionally motivated that this one is, is at best a little vaguely motivated. And I think it's just... There was so much internal logic until now. Yeah, I think he just violates her space. And that's that's enough for her at this point. She She's just not going to accept any of those violations ever again. Um, I think it, it might be explained karmically a little bit uh, later on when 
Arnie goes to visit uh, Dennis uh, for New Year's Eve. Mm. Um, they go on the road. They're drinking beers. This time, Arnie does not put a beer into a glass like he does in the hospital. Whoever taught him how to pour a beer should be in jail, right to jail. Well, you, think his, also, you think his parents taught him how to pour a beer? Also, they <laughs> should be in jail for, for giving him beer. He's a minor. Yes. Okay. Well, just throwing that uh, out this there. This seems to take place in. Uh, I, we later see Buddy Ripperton just buying alcohol. And I was like, Buddy's, but he's Buddy's nice, 30. Like, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> I buy it from Buddy. <laughs> Buddy's actually got a legit ID. It's not even fake. Right. Um, but so they're, they're having road beers on this open, lonely highway. And Dennis is just trying to figure out what is going on. What, what, where is his He's he's staging an intervention basically. Yes. And, uh, Arnie gives a monologue in which he says, quote, let me tell you a little something about love, Dennis. It has a voracious appetite. It eats everything. Friendship, family. It kills me. How much it eats. That phrase, it kills me mm-hmm. how much it eats, tells you exactly his state at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. He is the battery that is powering Christine, and Christine is hollowing him out. Yeah. He now accepts death. He accepts loneliness. He accepts rejection. He accepts alienating himself from those who care for him. Because Christine provides the continued freedom of getting behind the wheel, and yet she steers. Because and because she and because she loves him. Yes. It should be noted that the turtleneck budget on this film was probably two to three million. <laughs> <laughs> There's too many fucking turtlenecks. In this. Um, but uh, later, they uh, Lee. And Dennis decide that they have to do they have to do something beyond investigating. They just have to separate Arnie from Christine. And hopefully they find Arnie at the other end of this. So they lure Christine and Arnie into a trap at Darnell's with the hopes that Arnie might not be inside her, but they, yeah. they don't know. Yeah. They just are pretty sure that Christine will come. And they 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 charge up this this caterpillar uh you know front loader. And they're gonna they're gonna destroy Christine. I think you're underselling this moment actually a little. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, I want to say that uh, what 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 Dennis does is he writes like Darnell's Midnight or something like that, carves it onto Christine. And I know yes. they say like, oh, what if Arnie doesn't come? And and he's like, well, Christine will come. And I'm thinking about yeah. poor Christine trying to read that backwards because <laughs> it's written on her. It's sure. like Lin Rads, ha. Denim? What am I supposed mm. to do at Lorad's? Okay. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that the John Carpenter is coming up with this big epic conclusion to this thing. This isn't going to be Arnie dying like off camera. This is going to be like this huge giant confrontation. And he doesn't just, you know, like we're going to trick Christine into getting into a big magnet or something like that. Mm. He's thinking like a horror fan here because he knows that the only way to destroy a Christine is to bring in Killdozer. (laughs) It's actually Theodore Sturgeon's Killdozer, which is, it is one of the best names for a movie ever. It's about a bulldozer that gets a mind of its own and starts killing people on a deserted Island. Um, 
It's actually not a very good movie. It's the best title ever. Not a good yes. movie. Yeah. This is great the title, best Killdozer has movie. ever been. Yeah. And Killdozer, people forget, you know, like Marvin, like the, the, the robot uh, in like Forbidden Planet, like had a big career after Forbidden Planet. He would show up on Gilligan's Island. He would show up on Looney Tunes Back in Action. Killdozer only had this one other role. <laughs> And he made a meal of it. He knew this might be my last chance to get into Hollywood's good yeah. graces because there aren't a lot of rules for, for killer bulldozers. And he killed it. Literally, he killed Christine. Yes. And he was great at it. And he got to see a bulldozer driving over Christine. And it's so satisfying. It's like watching Godzilla crunch a building underneath his foot. Because you, 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 you know, they go over the bank of it and it just starts to reform a little. And then it's like, oh, fuck, I'm, I just, we have to, we have to go full bore. Yeah. Halfway ain't going to do it. And he goes all the way over. Before that, though, uh, poor Arnie does meet his end when he, when Christine tries to kill Lee inside the office. And I guess Arnie's just not wearing his seatbelt. Or Christine isn't paying attention. I'm not sure what it he is. Just got, he, sure he, he just gets flying through that windshield. Yeah. It just gets defenestrated right through that windshield and ends up with a gigantic shard of glass in his lung. Because because Chris, because, because Chris, looks great. Christine was, he looks great. Yeah. Christine was built before safety glass. That's the thing. He's he's it's possible because he's like there was glass in Darnell's office that he's like pushed through that maybe it was mm-hmm. a piece of Darnell's glass, but I think it's too long for that. He's killed on a piece of Christine. Yes. I think that's, that's the only so way ironic. he can be yeah, killed. Beautiful. And of course he pops into frame in that Arr! incredible, you know, way where he's yeah. like, and it's like, I need a hug. No matter, <laughs> no matter how I die, I really hope I have it in me for one last scare. I'm not even the bad guy in the movie. I just want to be like, oh no, he choked on that peanut. Oh, uh, that's too bad. Who do we call? Ah! <laughs> I just got to do one more. Come on. Yeah, his dying words are, I should have bought a compact. <laughs> Next time, an import. And one, eight, seven, um, seven cars for kids. <laughs> K-A-R-S cars for kids. <laughs> Lee for days. I can't get that fucking song out of my head. I hate that song, but it's so fucking catchy. Donate your car today. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, the next day, we learn that they've put Christine through a car compactor. We get that nice. Made her uh, little evil cube. Yeah. An evil cube that, oh, is the radio still on? No, 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 no. It's that some other guy with the boom box playing 50s music. Yeah. And we get that wonderful. This must have been the hardest thing, I think, for 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 John to put into a movie is latest line, where she says, God, I hate rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, I think that's half of why. King hates this movie. <laughs> that line. It's like how dare you? Somebody, if there's somebody who respects rock and roll, who hasn't written story after story, formed an entire fucking author band to play it, rock and roll it is Stephen King. And to end one of his properties, the final line being, "God, I hate rock and roll." I think he just he clinched his fist. And that's the feeling. Carpenter. But Carpenter, here's the thing. 
Carpenter can say the exact same thing. He had his own rock band. They were literally mm-hmm. called the Coupe de Vils. Yes. He clearly yes. likes cars and rock. He loves He has a sense them, of humor about it, though. That's the difference. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He doesn't take it personal. Yeah. But I think King, at this moment in time, is taking some things personal. He's human mm-hmm. being. I love Uncle Steve. Never get me wrong about that. But he's a human fucking being. And uh, it's a joke. Mm-hmm. But it, is it a joke? You know what I mean? I'm glad, so, I'm glad John Carpenter had that line rewritten. Because as we all know, the original last line in the screenplay, not the book, but then the screenplay was when Alexander Paul said, God, Stephen King sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and an Carpenter was like, really fucking stupid. a little too much. A little too much. Scale it back. Let's go. You're, you're, at a, you're at a 10. I want you at a 4. <laughs> So let's just, just pull it back. Let's let's insult something yeah. that King loves, not King himself. Yeah, exactly. What do you think? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we still have to do business with this man. <laughs> uh so that brings us to the point where we choose our own death venture. That's where we decide of the deaths in this film, uh, which one would you choose and why? Now you can suffocate inside Christine. You can get choked to death inside Christine. Um, we can get bisected. In a tight loading bay, a dark, wet night, you can get smashed into a gas station repair bay, emulated in a gas explosion, run over by a flaming car, crushed to death in the front seat of a smoldering car, or go through the windshield of that sentient car and end up with a shard of glass in your lung. And William, as our guest, I choose you uh, to go first. I, you know, I was bummed out because my I was thinking about this and my initial idea was... I want to be run over by Killdozer. But as we see in the last mm. shot, it didn't take. That's yeah. not technically a death. So we can't count Christine's death. And I'm mad about that because that was my dream since childhood. Yeah. Um, mm. I think, God, it, it, there are not a lot of like great options, actually. You're either going to feel a lot of pain or you're going to suffocate slowly. And yes. none of those are fun. So I'm going to mm. go with, I'm going to go with, ju- just this is purely selfish on my part. Uh because I, I have two options here. Do you want the death that's going to be like a really interesting, like news story, like outside of the obituary pages? Or do you want the death that's going to go easiest on you? It, it really just depends. It's a personal choice. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go with. I'm going to take it easy on myself because I've had a really rough week. I'm going to go with the guy who dies kind of off camera at the beginning of the movie because we actually mm. don't see him suffer at all. We don't right. know what happened to him. We don't know. Was it carbon monoxide? Did something? We don't know. But I'm going to assume that Christine was new at this and hadn't really gotten like a chip on her shoulder yet. And she took it pretty easy on me. Yeah, that was, so that was quick because he saw that cigar yeah. in his mouth. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it can't have been too bad. It certainly was quick. So I'm going to let him yes. have it. Sure. Yeah. Go for it. Uh, Gina, what say you? Um, using the same reasoning as William, I think I'm just going to take blown up in the gas station. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I too am taking blown up the gas station because really it is the force of the explosion rather than the burning that's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. You're you're dead long before that actually happens. So I too am taking uh, immolated, you know, exploded in a gas station because there, nothing remains. What, what if, whatever yeah, they're part like, of they're you like is they're like finding gone. a pair of smoking shoes. That's what, that's <laughs> all that's left of me. He's vaporized. He's that skeleton uh, outside the playground in Terminator 2. Like, he's just gone, baby. Yeah. He's bones. 
so that just about does it. The Josh Holmes does all of our artwork and Revenge Body does our songs. Go to Revenge Body Memphis at bandcamp.com for this song and all the other remixes. Uh, Mr. Bibiani, Hi. Uh, where can people hear more and read more from you? Okay, well, uh, I, I'm a film critic. Uh, I write for uh, publications like The Rap and Slash Film, uh, but um, uh, mostly probably what I do is uh, our podcasts over at the Critically Acclaimed Network. You can find us wherever fine podcasts are podcasted. You can just look for Critically Acclaimed Network. There we are. It's a series of shows. It's not just one show that I uh, produce and host with my co-host Whitney Seibold, also a Los Angeles film critic. Um, We review new movies. Uh, We have a new series that we premiered uh, a few months ago called Thank Godzilla, It's Friday. (laughs) <laughs> where we're reviewing every Godzilla and Godzilla adjacent movie ever Lovely. made in order every Friday. Mm. Mm. Uh, we wouldn't know anything about that. I love it. We, yes. we kind of like made our name in the podcasting realm with a show called Canceled Too Soon, where we reviewed TV series that lasted only one season or less and decided if they, whether or not they were canceled too soon. We have several hundred episodes of that. That's been on hiatus for a while, but we've brought it back for Halloween season for an event we call Scary Tober. Uh, and uh, we're doing a series of failed horror pilots. And the first episode, uh, the first episode's already out. I know that, regardless of when this episode airs. Uh, and it's for a failed pilot directed by Edward D. Wood Jr. Mm. Yeah, called Port- uh, called uh, Final Curtain, and uh, I think the show was going to be called Portrait of Terror, um, and it is just a blisteringly terrible TV pilot, but it is extremely <laughs> illuminating about Edward's like sort of life and psychology, mm. and we have found a way in within that conversation, and it really wasn't even forced; it happened very naturally to compare the work of Edward to Ingmar Bergman, Chris Marker. Uh, Lev Kuleshov, uh, and and these are unfavorable comparisons, but by God, they were mm. interesting because he's working on that level. Um, and oh, you can find a lot more of our shows at our Patreon, critically acclaimed. I'm sorry, Patreon.com/slash critically acclaimed network, uh, where we have, uh, in addition to our shows ad free, you can listen to bonus shows. We have a show called All Our Yesterdays, where we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in order. We have 200 episodes already in the back catalog. We're just about to wrap up season four of next generation. So if you sign up, you get a huge back catalog. We've got a show called only the best. We're reviewing every single movie ever nominated for best picture. And we're, we're, I think we're about to do 1954 on that one. So there's also a big back catalog. We just started another one there called only the best international, where we're trying to track down every movie ever nominated for best international feature. So we, quite a so we do a lot of these like really big completionist deep dives. And again, if you sign up to our Patreon, uh, we have other shows that are completely finished and you can delve into like Holy Batman, where we reviewed every single installment of the Adam West Batman. Uh, we did one that we did every episode of Firefly. Uh, and there's a lot more besides. So uh, head on over there. And I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani. I'm on Blue Sky at William Bibiani. And the podcasts are on social media at Critic Acclaim. Because critically acclaimed is like just a couple too many letters. Yeah, Very annoying. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think you, you do fantastic stuff over there. I love reading your reviews. I urge everyone to check it out. Uh, Gina, where can people find you on these here internet? Well, I don't have nearly as much going on as that, but uh, <laughs> I do write about movies and television at thespool.net. 
Uh, I have re- recently written there about uh, the, the new Exorcist movie. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I, I know. <laughs> I, I thank you. I, I, I know that you, you, you had to experience that as well. Um, <laughs> I wrote about, wrote about the Saw movies, uh, Criterion's 90s horror collection. Uh, at some point, I'll be reviewing the the uh, Five Nights at Freddy movie, even though I have, have only the most base familiarity with the game. Um, I also have a Substack. It's GinaWatchesThings.Substack.com. And I am on Blue Sky and Instagram and TikTok under Gina Does Things. Do it today, people. Check it out. You know where to find us on the socials. Uh, we're everywhere that is on Twitter. We're on TikTok. We're doing fun things on TikTok now. And you can find our Patreon where we have lovely bonus episodes. We talk over Halloween and Friday the 13th movies. And we do bonus episodes, and uh, we even do a chat by chat where we answer your questions. Uh, and that, unfortunately, is it for Christine for now. But don't worry, folks. The body count will continue for myself and for William. Bye bye, everybody. Bye bye.